If college is about learning from people who are qualified to teach you, how do you gauge those qualifications? Do you find yourself feeling better about schools that tout a higher volume of professors teaching classes who are tenured or on the tenure track? Do you look down on places that feature a higher volume of adjunct or contingent faculty members? Can you even get that information from schools? What is an adjunct professor? How do they fit into the scheme of college? And how does their prevalence impact your experience as a student? Well, this group of people make up a huge number of the workforce in higher ed and have a long list of very important concerns about the way they're treated as employees. And I invite you to learn more as I talk with Maria Maisto, president of the National Advocacy Organization for Adjunct Faculty Members called the New Faculty Majority. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Davin Sweeney, an admissions counselor who tries to find some lesser-known or underreported pieces of the college experience and talk to people who represent those things, uh, like my guest today. First up, though, make sure you're subscribed on iTunes, and while you're at it, don't forget to rate the show there, too. There's also uh, some more items to be found at crushpodcast.com. So, Maria Maisto is herself an adjunct faculty member at Cuyahoga Community College in uh, in Ohio, and heads up this organization called the New Faculty Majority, the charge of which is to advocate for more stability and benefits for faculty who right now are basically classified as semester-to-semester employees. I was interested in this topic to begin with, obviously, which is why I asked Maria to talk to me, but I have to admit that I left this one in particular much more educated and interested in the plight of adjunct or uh, contingent faculty members, and I think you will too. When it comes to adjunct faculty or those who don't have tenure and work on a semester-to-semester basis, we in admissions tend to either hide their prevalence if they are prevalent on our campus or uh, tout the fact that they are not a large part of the faculty. But there has been a lot of stuff in the news lately about this issue because it's super unstable work. The pay is quite low compared to their tenured counterparts. There are pretty much zero benefits, and these are all people who are highly qualified to teach in their subjects. In most cases, they hold the highest degrees in their field and yet enjoy none of the benefits and stability of tenured faculty members. So how does this impact the student's experience in college? Why are there adjunct faculty in the first place? Is it necessarily good or bad if a school has a lot of them? If they're paid less than tenured faculty members, does that mean it's cheaper to go to a school with a lot of adjuncts? I spoke to Maria by phone from Washington, D.C., where she was in town to continue to champion her cause. Where are you right now? I'm actually in Washington, D.C., although I live in Akron, Ohio. Um, I'm here to do some little work. What are you doing in D.C.? Well, one of the things that we try to do at my organization at New Faculty Majority is we work on policy issues related to higher education. So I try to come to D.C. as often as I can to make sure that I stay connected to uh, to the folks who are working on these policy issues. Um, but it's related to the Higher Education Reauthorization Act, to issues around unemployment and labor, other Department of Labor issues that we've been trying to work on. It's an expansive issue. Yes, it is. It's uh, it's getting more and more uh, attention, and it's an important issue. It's becoming increasingly necessary for uh, for folks who work in higher ed to make sure that they stay connected to policymakers. 
Yeah. I mean, and I, I count myself among that group of people, um, yeah. you know, yeah. to, and to, and to learn a little bit more from you about, about what's going on. So why don't I sure. just ask you, can you tell me what an adjunct faculty member is and what the difference is sure. between someone like that and somebody that might, we might call a professor or a tenured track faculty member or something like that? Sure. Well, the first thing I will say is an adjunct is a professor. So, uh, adjunct is an adjective, so not a noun, even though we use it as a noun. So an adjunct professor is basically a professor who is hired on a temporary basis, um, oftentimes on a semester-to-semester semester basis, or if you're on trimesters, trimester-to-trimester trimester basis. So adjunct has become shorthand for temporary professor. And now in higher education, around 75% of faculty are considered temporary. Now, that includes uh, professors who are temporary on the most part-time basis, um, semester to semester, term to term, but it also includes professors who are hired on maybe year-to-year contracts or two to three years or even up to five years, and that's very different from the traditional understanding of what uh, employment as a professor has been with probationary status for about seven years and then tenure, which uh, is really the uh, the sort of guarantee of due process um, so that you cannot be fired without cause, which is what most people would really like to have in their jobs is you know, if you're going to be fired, that you have some kind of due process so that you can appeal your dismissal if necessary. So we generally categorize professors as, as, as being on the tenure track or off the tenure track. And the vast majority of professors in higher education in the United States and actually probably around the world today are off the tenure track. So without any eligibility for that um, strongest standard of due process before they can be dismissed. Your organization is called the New Faculty Majority Foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, You just helped us understand why the word majority is a key word in that, in in your organization's name. What about new? Why is it that right now is is the time that we have, have seen an increase in adjunct faculty members and and what is it about right now that makes advocacy for this issue so important? Yeah. How is this different from you know twenty or fifty years ago? Yeah, no, that's a that's a really great question. I mean, this is the question that we grappled with when we came up with the name. We were established in two thousand nine, um, so we're actually two affiliated nonprofits. We're New Faculty Majority, the National Coalition for Adjunct and Contingent Equity, and the New Faculty Majority Foundation. So uh, we sort of, NFM, New Faculty Majority, is shorthand for both organizations. Um, One is a 501c3 and one is a 501c6. We call ourselves New Faculty Majority because it's really been in the last 25 to 40 years or so that the numbers have really shifted to this majority temporary faculty workforce. And it's, it's been tried to be explained in lots of different ways. The most common understanding uh, of why this shift has happened 
has been the massive disinvestment in higher education um, on the part of states. So uh, because uh, of that decline in, um, in funding, uh, colleges and universities were faced with budget shortfalls that they chose to address by hiring faculty uh, temporarily rather than investing in their faculty um, as, a, as a line item that was, that was more permanent. So you're talking about um, the, 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 common, the, the, our, pub, our national public system of higher education right, has gone right. through some pretty substantial budget cuts over, over exactly. the years. Exactly. Exactly, and so, um, so there's you know there's a lot of research that has been done into the causes of the shift to a contingent workforce, but it really mirrors what's been happening in the workforce more generally. As we know, um, there are far more contingent what they're what are called contingent uh, jobs out there, um, temporary temporary jobs, part time jobs, jobs that do not require the employer to make very much of a commitment to the employee. Now, on the one hand, that's been touted as providing a lot of flexibility and freedom and independence to employees, um, and that's true to a certain degree, but it also creates a huge amount of precarity, of precariousness, meaning uh, that, that employees don't often know if they're going to have a job from one period to the next, in the case of, of adjunct professors, from one term to the next. Um, and for adjunct professors in particular, it's been um, particularly volatile because uh, because our employment is subject to such not just budget fluctuations, but also to enrollment fluctuations and actually also to basically the vagaries of, of whatever is happening uh, politically in a department or a college. So, um, you know, you could be uh, not hired again uh, simply because the department head doesn't like you or because they want to hire somebody else. So it has, there have been a lot of factors that have, that have influenced uh, the way that faculty, contingent faculty are hired in particular, but, but that's one of them. And, and that really points to another really problematic reason for the rise of the contingent faculty workforce. And that is, we generally explain it as a sort of a political reason is that the faculty have traditionally uh, supposed to play a role in shared governance and and tenure is a really important uh, is a really important element of the concept of shared governance the idea that you know you have a, a faculty workforce that doesn't have to worry about political uh, reasons for being fired, having access to due process, and so therefore with some freedom of independence, freedom and independence to to participate in shared governance um, and to really look out for the the well-being of the institution and the the students. Um, Faculty who are hired on a contingent basis don't have access to that kind of protection, that kind of um, freedom and independence. And there are many people uh, who believe that the shift to a contingent faculty workforce is uh, due largely to the desire on the part of colleges and universities to sort of disempower politically, politically disempower the faculty so that decisions can be made on a on a more in the vein of a more corporate model, where administrators can make decisions without having to worry about pushback from faculty. And this is a um, new and, a very, and, and this is sort of a new model, a new administrative model that is that is you know provoking the the need as you see it for uh, increased 
action around advocacy for these issues? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you'll hear a lot of people talk about the corporatization of higher education. So the, tell the me what you mean of, about that. These corporate models. Well, it's the, it's the use of that corporate model of management um, in order to run the college or university uh, more like a business than like uh, an institution of higher education. Yeah. So what kind of things do they, you know, what, what, what kinds of things have, have, have changed in the administration of universities away from what, you know, might be a more traditional definition of, yeah. of being run by a university? Right. Well, one of the yeah one of one of the biggest factors has been, um, in addition to the economic factors related to uh, trying to run the college and university as quote unquote efficiently as possible with with costs as as you know trying to control costs and looking at 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 professors as uh, simply another line that that budget line that has to be controlled um, is also sort of shifting to a model where you're sort of trying to produce students for the for the workforce you know the the uh the idea that college is uh is is supposed to be the primary producer of employees of the workforce of of the country which of course it is part of its function but traditionally has not been its total function. I mean, the the purpose of college is also supposed to be to provide uh, a, a place and a space where students can develop uh, their their critical thinking and their their education, so that they be so that they become can become more active uh, members of society. So this idea of civic engagement and educating citizens. Uh, to participate in our democracy more effectively and more freely has always been part of of the tradition of higher education and 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 in you know the re- in recent decades we've moved away from that um, with this strong focus on educating a workforce um, and providing them with simply with the skills that they need to get well-paying jobs right. um, or jobs at, at all and so we've really shifted away from uh, an equal valuing of college and of higher education for producing that uh, educated citizenry. And I think we're really starting to see the effects of moving away from that with the kinds of, uh, of volatile political uh, environments that we have now where, uh, where people, uh, it seems that, that extremism is really dominant and, and we don't have a lot of models for speaking critically and rationally about issues and learning how to participate together to make our democracy more fair, more just, um, and more vibrant. So that's really, that's really been a huge factor, I think, in the shift to a contingent workforce. When you have a contingent workforce, you've, you've basically declared th- that your, your central purpose, your core purpose as an institution of higher education may not be this traditional model of learning both skills but also values and uh, and skills for citizenship so is it fair then to say look I'm you know I'm, I'm an administrator you know working today perhaps yeah. in the in, you know in the, in the administrative model that you were just talking about and then you also just talked about you know sort of historic levels of, of defunding of, of public education of higher education yeah. you know can't I just say hey I'm an administrator you know look my hands are tied I just don't have the I don't have right. the I need to be more efficient I need to run a leaner operation yeah. as a result yeah. of, of of that of that reality that's, and that's actually what we hear a lot from administrators especially administrators who don't have 
the kind of decision-making power that that they probably should have, because if they did have the power, they would they would actually you know make more of a stand, take more of a stand uh, on public uh, investment, reinvestment in higher education. So so you know we understand the fact that uh, that there are factors that aren't always in the control of administrators in terms of of combating these trends. However, there are a couple of things that that research and experience have shown to be true. One of them is that decisions about how resources are actually allocated are not being made necessarily with the input of the faculty or with a, a consensus about whether or not the, those resources really should be allocated, how they should be allocated in order to support uh, these core values of higher education. So, for example, one of the things you hear about a lot is the unbundling of the faculty role. It used to be that faculty members, I mean, when I went to college, um, your faculty member was also your advisor, right? And uh, your faculty members were people who were very well situated in the college, had a long history with the college, had some investment in its future. Um, and now with the hiring of adjunct faculty who may or may not be able, even if they want to, um, to have a, a more invested role in the institution, um, you have to hire advisors and you have to hire um, additional support staff to do all of the things that we used to expect faculty to do. And, you know, part of that is so that you can sort of plug and play these different roles and that you can sort of play with those parts in order to adjust to budgets and things like that. But it hasn't always been been executed in a way that really looks at the long-term effects of, of these policies and practices. So it, it can look like a short-term good decision, but it doesn't always take into account what the long-term costs might be both to the students themselves and to the faculty members who are sort of being um, used as disposable parts um, and the other support staff, frankly. Who right. Are so also it sounds like one of the things to- that, you know, maybe you are saying could be uh, a positive outcome for university bottom lines would be to, you know, in, invest in longer term secure employment for faculty right. who are currently uh, categorized as contingent because you would be able to ask them to perform a lot of the functions that you're right. currently asking other full-time staff to perform? Partly, yes. I mean, there, there's definitely a need for, uh, for, for many of those. Thinking about advising in particular. Roles, right. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it certainly as, as some, as some roles have become more complicated, it's perfectly appropriate to have other administrative roles. And I want to make clear that we're not talking about, you know, trying to, um, trying to save some people's jobs or improve some people's uh, professions at the expense of others. But it's really about thinking more holistically and more in terms of what is our long-term goal? What are the values that are guiding um, our decision-making? Um, and how can we do it in a way that really keeps that long-term goal in mind? And what are the costs? Um, we, you know, we, we think very clearly in terms of the monetary costs, the financial costs, but we don't always think long-term. And there are financial costs that are long-term costs, too, that we haven't really paid as much attention to and haven't really analyzed as well as we, as we could be. And that's something we're trying to work on at, at NFM is to understand what the long-term costs of contingent employment are. And, you know, we, we know anecdotally and we know from some research what some of those costs are. We know that 
that students don't always get the benefits that they need from this contingent model. For example, students often miss out on continuity of mentorship with faculty because if if contingent faculty can be dismissed at any time or if they have to leave because they can't afford um, to work at the um, at the compensation levels that that are being offered, and I we hadn't talked about this, but the national compensation level is twenty seven hundred dollars per course with no access to benefits, um, including health and retirement, unless faculty are unionized, and that's one of the reasons that faculty are increasingly unionizing across the country, is that that's become sort of the only um, the only viable path to securing some some kind of um, of more stable employment and and these and these professional working conditions. And are those faculty um, unions a, a combination of contingent and tenure track faculty folks? Yeah, in some places there there are there are mix, what they call mixed units, and there are also contingent only units. But there you know, but it's it's still the vast majority of contingent faculty. Are not unionized and don't have access. And I would imagine to this is this is this is one of the uh, is this one of the goals of your organization to promote. Yeah, this? I mean, what we we look we look at organizing as in itself a value. So whether or not it results in organizing through a union, um, the 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 ultimate goal is to improve professional working conditions for faculty, so that the learning conditions of students will also be safeguarded and improved. And we also try to make very, very clear that the issue, because sometimes this happens in, in these kinds of conversations, is that, uh, is that it can be easy to, to misinterpret the goal of, of efforts to reduce contingency. It's, it's not a question of replacing the contingent faculty with, quote-unquote, better faculty. It's, it's really improving the working conditions of these faculty because it's these, these folks, as I said, are professors. We've been trained the way that we're supposed to be trained. We have um, experience, um, but we're not being given the working conditions that we need in order to do uh, the best possible job that we can for our students. Now, many of us, the vast majority of us, do that anyway, but it's really, um, it ends up that the individual faculty members are really compensating for the lack of professional working conditions. So I know countless faculty members who, even though they aren't paid uh, technically for office hours, basically donate their time to make themselves available to students in order to, to, to provide that mentorship that, that students need. Or, you know, they don't have offices, so, um, so they will go out of their way to, to find a place where they can meet with students, um, again, to provide that individual uh, support that research shows is one of the most critical uh, issues, one of the most critical factors um, in promoting student success. Well, I'll never forget um, meeting, so. you know, my, one of my, it was my, my graduate statistics professor who was an adjunct, met me, yeah. at, a, met me at a Starbucks in Union Square with her, with her newborn son. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, that's and, and very I should, typical. Right, and I should say that this, you know, that we are talking about not just the undergraduate experience, but that, you know, in many, many graduate programs, you know, and other kinds yeah. of programs, you know, contingent magic faculty are, are being employed. Right. Um, so this is the the reason that I am interested in this, in this in particular is because, you know, my job as a college admissions counselor is to yeah. basically, you know, I'm the uh, the traveling salesman uh, you know, right, right. going around and 
throwing dirt on people's carpets and showing them how, how good my, <laughs> my vacuum cleaner works, right? But, uh-huh. you know, one of the things that we talk about, and certainly one of the questions that, that we get a lot, uh, certainly among the, uh, let's say, you know, parents who for whom this mm-hmm. is not their first rodeo or, uh, right. you know, are, are receiving some sophisticated guidance in terms of the kinds of questions they should ask. Uh, one that comes up frequently is, you know, percentage of courses taught by yes. professors. And, and as we right. and as you helped me, uh, you know, understand earlier, adjuncts are professors, but that's not what they right. mean, right? When they say that, that's not what they mean. They mean right. uh, not graduate students, uh, not adjunct faculty, but tenure track faculty members. And the the answer that they're looking for is something that should be as close to 100% as possible. You know, right. uh, they do mm-hmm. not, they're, they're shopping for colleges based on the degree to which they will, they, they, they're not likely to engage uh, or have to rely deeply on uh, an education provided by those who are working in uh, 75% of teaching positions. So, right. you know, is is this, what do you think about that? You know, and is it is it misguided for, for families, you think, to want to have that? Uh, and what do you think parents and students need to know about this issue as they look at colleges to put on their list to apply to? Yeah. Well, I, I can say, speaking as the parent of, of a college student, I have a rising senior, so I, we've already started doing the college visits. Um, and I so appreciate the fact that you, uh, that, that as an admissions counselor, you're aware, uh, that this is an issue that, that many parents are addressing and need to address. And you're absolutely right. When they ask that question about, how many professors are there or how many, what percentage of courses are taught by professors. You're absolutely right. What they mean is basically professors who are going to be on campus with the professional working conditions that they need in order to provide my student with uh, all of the support that uh, and education that they need. Um, there's just no shorthand for saying that. And, and referring to professors or to tenure-track professors is, has become the shorthand uh, for how to refer to it. And I think that it's really important for parents and students to understand um, why this is so important and the kind of power that they have to influence not just the colleges and universities to help them understand how important it is to the parents and the students, um, but also to talk to their legislators and to their policymakers. Um, a couple of questions ago, you asked me, you know, what can what can we do? What can administrators do who feel powerless to to stop this trend? What can faculty do who feel powerless to stop this trend? Um, and my standard answer, and I've been ridiculed for it, but I might, but I make it anyway, is that you have to have the political will to go to your leaders, your college leaders, your community leaders, your uh, state leaders, your national leaders, and you have to explain to them how important it is, how important education is, and how important it is to invest in the faculty who are supposed to provide that education. Now, why would an answer Um, like that uh, evoke ridicule? You know, I've tried to understand that, too. Apparently, uh, we're supposed to just understand this as market trends that we have no control over, um, which I soundly reject. I think that our uh, that our political process is one that requires us to be involved and to articulate our values. Um, and when our policymakers and our and our leaders are not 
going in the right direction. It's up to us to explain to them which direction we need to go and to insist on it. So I think that one of the things that could happen is for faculty and administrators and parents and students to unite. That's one reason why we call ourselves a coalition. Um, we're not just a, a, an organization that is uh, that, that seeks support from faculty members. We seek support from anyone who understands and cares about the issue of investment in faculty. So, um, so as a parent, of improving education. So, as a parent who's doing this right now, who's engaged in this process and going to colleges and learning to, yeah. from them about it, you know, what are you paying attention to, given your unique position? Um, yeah. and, and, and degree of interest in this issue. What are you paying attention to from, you know, the admissions office? And, you know, are yeah. you are you digging into this at all and asking uh -huh. some questions that are, you know, forcing your, your child's uh, yeah. palm directly into their face? Uh, right. You know, there goes mom well, it's, again. It's, but I just, you know. Yeah, it's, that's actually, you know, that's, that's been a running joke between us. <laughs> um, my, my daughter is, is very, very understanding. She's completely supportive of the work that I do. But uh, she once asked me, she said, am I only going to be allowed to go to a college that, you know, that has a unionized adjunct faculty or that doesn't have, a, you know, and of course I, I said, no, I want you to pick the college that's right for you. And if the conditions are not right for adjunct faculty there, then I hope that you'll be a part of uh, the efforts on that campus to improve working conditions for those faculty because, because that often is, is a critical piece of, of the puzzle. I mean, there have been places where adjuncts have tried to unionize, where administration has been very resistant, and it's been the involvement of the students that, that ultimately has helped um, the administration realize that it needed, you know, that it needed to be more uh, receptive to the organizing efforts of the faculty. So, um, and what I really like about it um, is that it really, it, it provides a very practical, visceral, uh, example for students of, of how you work within a community, within a society to affect positive change. So um, taking ownership of, of their education, I think, is a critical piece of, of, the, of, the, of the puzzle in higher education. That's one of the things that we want students to learn, as I said, you know, it's part of their education as citizens. So learning to understand the campus as a microcosm of our larger society, um, all of the issues that we're dealing with in society uh, play themselves out on campuses, and students can learn to be involved. And, um, and employment issues, um, organizing, uh, the reasons for organizing, those are issues that students need to be aware of, and I think that that becomes real important. I think that the college admissions folks, um, I've only, we've only visited a few colleges so far, and I was interested to find to discover that the admissions folks didn't really know what the percentage of faculty are on their campuses that are contingent. So uh, there was one that was a little bit defensive about it, um, seemed to, to, um, to interpret my question, how many faculty are adjuncts and how many are, are full-time and tenure-track. Um, seem to interpret it as uh, an invitation to to talk about how important it is to have adjuncts who are actually experienced in the real world and they're not academics who, you know, who don't know anything about the real world, which is very unfair. 
characterization and a false characterization. So, you know, there's clearly more work that has to be done in in uh, helping people to understand how to talk about this issue in a way that uh, that is helpful to everyone who needs to be part of the conversation. My wife is a is a, a postdoc and she's finished her uh-huh. PhD and all that stuff and is looking for a career in, in, in higher mm-hmm. education, ideally on a tenure track. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, in addition to there being, there are all kinds of historic things that are happening with funding and staffing uh, in higher right. education. You know, one of them is just that we've got more PhDs now than ever. Yep. who have graduated and are ready to become professors and, and there's no room at the inn, right? That right, um, right. They, they sort of are continuing to, you know, languish in postdoctoral yep. studies programs um, yep. that, you know, I was reading an article recently that said that they've really started to just kind of build that reality into their, their plan. Um, and this is a particular problem in STEM fields, where we've yeah. been really, really successful at encouraging people to study in these fields and to study all the way through to a PhD and do all this fantastic research, but then then there's nowhere else for them to go. So, right. you know, it's right. like an unfortunate consequence of our success in encouraging people to study in this in this yeah. field. So, so is this one of the is 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 contingent faculty? Is this a where a lot of these kinds of uh, graduates with PhDs are going is into this labor force yeah, sort of absolutely. In, in hopes that, you know, one day something yep. will open up. And then does working as a contingent faculty member impact their ability to get a job as a tenured track faculty member yeah. one way or another? Yeah, that, those are both excellent questions. And I'll answer the, the last one first. We talk a lot in the contingent faculty equity movement about the stigma of being an adjunct or a contingent faculty member. So, you know, in theory, being an adjunct or contingent faculty member is supposed to give you that foot in the door, that, you know, that phrase, the foot in the door to help you get that more permanent position. Um, I've I've started to call it foot in door disease because what, what it has actually turned into is it's really an exploitative practice where because colleges and universities know that there are so many people who want permanent positions, they basically control the market. So when we talk about supply and demand, it's really not accurate to say that we have an oversupply of qualified faculty um, and we don't have a demand for them. What has happened is that we've created an artificial scarcity of those positions. We know that there is a need for those positions, those those uh, permanent positions. We know it uh, both in the STEM fields and in the humanities. I'm in the humanities. We don't lack for uh, the students. You know, students are looking for classes. Um, and we're starting to pack more people into classes when that's not necessarily the best thing pedagogically. So, uh, so the colleges and universities control both the supply and the demand, and they have created a situation that that works to their advantage um, in terms of having their pick of uh, of candidates, but does not work to the advantage of either the faculty, the fact, the faculty of the future, um, the faculty of the present and the future, or the students, because it's everything is being motivated by this effort to control costs and to to control uh, to control the faculty workforce. So it's it's very very short sighted. 
Um, a lot of uh, faculty now in their graduate programs are being told more honestly than I was when I was in my grad program that that their that their chances of getting a full time tenure track position are very low and that they should start to uh, investigate other options. And you know, I'm sort of agnostic on whether or not it, that's a good thing or not. I think that there is a huge need for these folks in higher education. Um, and that we shouldn't necessarily be discouraging people from careers in higher education, um, particularly in faculty positions. But we have to make sure that those faculty positions are well-supported, professionally supported, um, if we really want to think about the long-term health of higher education. So talk to me about some progress that you've made or some victories that you've had through your work in advocacy. Well, I think that one of the things that we have been able to do is really raise the profile of the issue. When we first started back in 2009-2010, I think there was still a lot of misunderstanding and denial uh, of the problem. And so our, you know, our first focus in in the first few years of our work was really to educate the public um, and educate our colleagues within higher education and students about the existence of the problem. So we were able to increase the attention uh, by by the media by several hundred percent in the first few years of our of our work. The other thing that we've been able to do is really encourage organizing, um, both uh, in a union context and for people for whom that may or may not be possible or for whom that's difficult to encourage them to think about organizing also in terms of their disciplinary associations. So there are many disciplinary associations in higher ed, as you probably know. I belong to the Modern Language Association, which is the disciplinary association for teachers of English and and, uh, and foreign languages, and also to the National uh, Co- uh, Council of Teachers of English. And those disciplinary associations have increasingly uh, turned their attention to the problem of contingent employment in higher ed. And so so folks have been organizing within the disciplinary organizations, again, in order to present a more unified front to policymakers and other leaders to help them understand that this is a problem that we all have to address as a community. So increasing attention, public attention, in uh, supporting and, and promoting organizing in many different contexts. Those are two, I think, real successes that we've had. And then in in the more recent years, we've started to move uh, to add some attention to policy-level work. So we're looking at actual federal and state laws that directly affect contingent faculty and can really be useful in improving the working conditions of contingent faculty. So one of our first projects was working on access to unemployment insurance in between academic terms. Um, The Department of Labor has a very old uh, rule on unemployment that basically was designed for K-12 teachers who have continuing contracts and who uh, don't work in the schools in the summer, but are, you know, have, have, uh, can be paid in the summer and continue to have their contracts. Contingent faculty, as I explained, you know, are, are basically fired every semester and then rehired in another semester. And they should have access. I know. It's uh, it's basically like seasonal work, right? It's like actors going from gig to gig, musicians going from gig to gig, Uber drivers. Um, um, But uh, in in most seasonal industries, you have access to unemployment when you're not working. 
But in higher education, colleges and universities have, I think, very disingenuously taken advantage of this uh, this law in in, uh, high, in unemployment law, which is uh, obsolete, to deny adjunct faculty unemployment in between terms. So they basically have their cake and eat it too. They hire people when they want to, but they and they treat them like temporary employees, which they are. But when these people try to access unemployment, they say, oh, no, this person is a, has what, what's called reasonable assurance of continued employment, which is, which is basically false. And so a lot of adjuncts get denied their unemployment over the summer, which is extremely, makes, makes for ex- extreme hardship for many of them. So what we did was we put a coalition together of unions and other organizations that went to the Department of Labor and said, you know, explained what the problem was and, and requested a clarification um, that could be used uh, by faculty to take back to their states and, and to, to help uh, reform the laws around unemployment. And we've made a lot of progress on that. We hope to hear something very soon from the Department of Labor on that, on that clarification. And, and if that happens, I think that's going to be really important because it is going to make contingent academic employment cost the colleges and universities more uh, than it has been costing them. Um, it, it'll, be, it'll be a more true representation of the cost of the flexibility that they're trying, that they, that they value so much. So um, it's these kinds of strategies, looking at the law and trying to figure out, okay, which laws are really relevant and are part of an overall strategy for addressing uh, and improving the the employment conditions of contingent faculty. Those are the kinds of things we're working on. Yeah, I mean, this um, is you know, I um, I, I uh, ambled through a labor law class in, in graduate school, and oh, you know, I think okay. I, I picked up you know the essential parts, but the but it was like a third level law school class, and I was I was not a, a law school student, and so it was you know, but you know, it, it, you don't have to have had an experience like that to understand that this is really complicated. I mean, labor law right, is just right, is, is right. crazy complicated. I mean, just, you know, in listening to all of the various sort of levels and layers and jurisdictions and stuff that you have to work sure. with, you know, anybody can kind of get a sense of that. But my question is, how much of these issues are, are, are federal labor law issues and how many are, you know, state and local? And, yeah. and you know, you're in Washington, D.C. right now. You know, do you have to kind of work on both or can one inform the other or, or, or how does that yeah. work? Yeah, we, we really try to work on both because, as you know, um, you know, what happens at the state level can influence what happens at the federal level and vice versa. So, for example, California has already dealt with the unemployment issue. Um, so adjuncts in California now have access to uh, unemployment uh, insurance in between terms. And so part of what we're trying to do is, is, is uh, apply what we've learned from California um, and help the federal government understand the issue. Uh, the local and state and and the federal. And it's important, I think, again, because faculty have to learn how to be more involved in in advocating for their own uh, employment rights, Um, not just for themselves, but also, again, as a model for their students. 
so many of my students, you know, when we talk about employment prospects and employment possibilities, um, I'm, I'm often shocked and demoralized by how little they know about what their rights are as employees and, and what the history of the labor movement is in this country. They sort of seem resigned to a life of, uh, you know, of of trying to pay back their their increasingly high student debt, mm-hmm. um, and I think we really have to mobilize as a community, um, and we as faculty really have to understand that our role is not just to teach them the academic subjects, but um, but to help them understand how how they're going to be able to function in the world. That's always. You know, that's always been part of the purposes of, of education. Are, are faculty so, members who are tenured or tenure track uh, generally supportive of, you know, the efforts that you are yeah. uh, undertaking? Or because I, I could also see them being a little bit, you know, yeah. uh, territorial and protective of their of yeah. their status. Yeah, they're they're more supportive now than they have been in the past, but they're not as supportive as they should be. Um there, I think they now understand better what the issues are, um, and we have more tenured and tenure line faculty who are willing to be vocal and active and collaborative uh, with us in our efforts to address these these issues because they understand the big picture and they understand that it's about the quality of higher education and the integrity of the profession. Um, but yes, it's true there still are faculty, tenured line faculty who don't understand the issue, who see it as a status issue, uh, who see adjuncts, again, as failed academics um, and, and apply this stigma to adjuncts. And so uh, a lot of the time, these are the folks have... that are on the that are on the that are hiring into, you know, tenured. Yeah, track that's roles, right. right. That's right. And we have we have many, many tenure line colleagues in in NSM who have been doing phenomenal work in, in educating their colleagues, their peers and in, in the tenure lines and in the tenure tracks um, about the importance of this issue. Um, because, you know, ultimately we're, we're all colleagues. And one thing we like to say to folks is that, uh, that there is no difference in tuition. There is no difference in what you pay for a course that is taught by a tenure line faculty member um, or by a contingent faculty member. By all available markers, there really is no difference from a student's perspective. There shouldn't be a difference from a student's perspective between the faculty that teach, uh, the faculty on the tenure line and the faculty that are that are not on the tenure line. And many of the tenure line faculty have not uh, internalized that reality and are trying to preserve um, a distinction when, in fact, you know, what we really should be doing is making sure that anyone who is involved in educating students um, has the necessary access to academic freedom and due process and shared governance that are so critical for providing a quality education. Do you have a means or method of recognizing the, the, the good works of individual universities that have adopted the changes that you're looking for? Um, do you mean like is there sort of a, a a ranking system or that kind of thing? Or? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, is there a – I just wonder that, yeah. <clears throat> you know, I mean uh, – to it could be one answer to the question what's in it for the yeah. universities who who take you up on uh, on your suggestions and yeah. obviously you've made the case over and over again that that there are there are tons of 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 benefits you know internally and you know to the bottom line and to the quality of the education that students can get but 
these are these are very public facing entities whose reputation uh yeah you know yeah. is quite valuable to them and uh and so i just I, I wonder on on that reputation front is there some work that you're doing to you know to, to yeah to showcase some things that people are doing right yeah well I, I you know that's that's absolutely one of the things that we would like to be able to to point to so for example one of the policy issues that we're working on is um is requiring colleges and universities to make transparent to the public what the working conditions are for their faculty. And when that starts to happen, you know, there will be a, sort of a natural revelation of which colleges are are doing better on this front than others and and it will become um, more uh, a more common factor that that co- that students and parents will consider when when um, when evaluating colleges and universities um, uh, for uh, to apply to um, so you know so having that kind of transparency is is really important um, we would love to be able to uh, have some kind of recognition or award of some kind um, to help recognize the colleges that are that are really working on this um, there are some folks who who also would like there to be sort of a list of the worst performing colleges and universities um, and and we understand that um, I think that uh, that colleges and universities have to understand uh, some of the, the the risks that are involved in, in continuing to employ this model um, and and that in itself should should be a disincentive, not just sort of the the reputation of the college, but they should be thinking about the um, the internal risks, the legal risks. Um, uh, for example, when colleges don't provide offices to their faculty, then they risk multiple violations of FERPA laws um, because uh, students' privacy is not being protected. Um, so helping them to understand those kinds of issues. One thing that has recently happened that I think is really positive is um, is that the Carnegie classification for community engagement is now um, going to start looking at ways that the, the criteria for getting that designation, which is a very prestigious designation, um, will include, um, will start to include some attention to how colleges and universities treat their contingent faculty who are, after all, members of their communities. Um, so, uh, so helping to shift some of the reward structures um, so that there is, uh, that there is a real uh, tangible benefit to treating their faculty well um, is, is certainly something we'd like to see happen. Um, uh, though we hope that the, you know, that the effects, you know, we see the effects of it when, um, when, when faculty are supported, students uh, tend to graduate more easily, more quickly. Um, again, not because contingent faculty are, are, are worse educators, but because the conditions in which they work have an impact on those, uh, on those, on those uh, markers, on those um, uh, those measures right. of student success. Where, if uh, I'm a if I'm a parent or other interested party, and I'm curious about to learn more about the you know the working conditions and the and the the status of of contingent faculty at an individual school, is there a place I can go to get that information? 
Not currently. That's one of the things we're, we're working on. We'd, we'd like, as part of the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, for colleges and universities to be required to disclose that information, and then, that, then it can be aggregated um, so that there are uh, places where parents and students can go to see that. Um, again, one of the problems has been that collecting the data has been difficult. Many colleges and universities admit that they don't want that data to be publicly disclosed because it doesn't look good. But, you know, trying to get some consistency uh, in, in the collection of that data and in disclosure of it is one of our goals so that parents and students can make the best decisions that they can and, and, and really help colleges and universities understand how important this issue is. Where in general can people stay tuned to uh, the struggle and the progress that you're making? Yeah. So uh, our website, uh, newfacultymajority.org, we have a Facebook and Twitter uh, accounts that are very active that try to keep people informed. Just keeping sort of abreast of the news of higher education, I think, is really important. And, And for parents and students in particular, um, asking the question when they go on these college tours and when they're considering colleges um, and learning how to ask questions so that they're not just asking how many professors are going to be teaching my students, um, but what are the working conditions for all of the faculty here? How many faculty are temporary and how many have access to due process and academic freedom? Those are the kinds of questions they need to ask because when when they start asking those questions, Colleges and universities will realize that these factors are important to them. But, yeah, absolutely connect with uh, with NSM. As I said, we're a coalition not just of faculty but of, of students, administrators, citizens, policymakers, anyone who understands the importance of this issue and wants to help us affect change. I just found the uh, the Twitter page. It's uh, at New Fac Majority, and I had a sad chuckle to myself at one of the other similar accounts that they suggested called Precaricor. Uh-huh. Well, actually, yes. Precaricor is actually a wonderful new nonprofit organization that some colleagues of ours started to basically provide emergency financial assistance to adjunct faculty who need it. They're about, you know, 25%, I think, is what the research has shown of uh, of faculty who are eligible for public assistance. So you can get as much education as you possibly can in this country. You can you can work hard, do everything right, and you can still end up in a job where you cannot support your family or support yourself. And and that's disgraceful. So these colleagues have put together this basically it's an emergency assistance fund because we've heard stories of, of colleagues who have been in dire Straits uh, and you know and and needed that that kind of help. So I mean that's a sad commentary on the state of affairs. I had no idea, you know, and I, I'm I'm glad to learn about it from you, and it and underscores the value of the work that you're doing. Let us know how we can help. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Looking forward to to staying tuned and and watching things go the, go the right way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and thank you so much for shining a spotlight on this issue. It's so important. Our colleagues in admissions um, are such important people, and you know they're they're such an important part of this effort. Um, and so, you know, thank you for for understanding and and working on this and and helping people to understand how, how important the issue actually is. Wow! So you heard that right. 
the uh, the amount of people who can't even support their families and have like PhDs. That's crazy. Not okay. Uh, we really don't make it easy in this country to be a teacher, no matter what. And uh, while my dad was a high school teacher for a really long time, I never gave a ton of thought to what it's like to be a teacher in college until I started to do this work. And also as my wife uh, herself began to approach this issue as a recent PhD grad looking for tenure track employment. And I'll just say it's, it's not easy. You know, there aren't a ton of jobs out there. And Maria says she doesn't want to discourage people from going this route, but man, you know, it's, it's not easy. I mean, in the list of the uh, articles that her organization lists on their website that you can, you can check out at New Faculty Majority, the first one uh, by Salon is called Professors on Food Stamps, the Shocking True Story of Academia in 2014. Good Lord. Super interesting point she makes there about the cost of tuition not really being different if you take a class from an adjunct versus taking class from a tenure professor. You know, as with all this stuff, there are a lot of sides to the story, complexities that deserve their own hours uh, to explore. But suffice it to say, this is an issue that deserves its day in the sun. It deserves an answer from all of us about how much we value those who teach us in this country, whether you're talking about K-12 educators or adjunct faculty both groups of educators who uh, don't seem to be getting the recognition in our national consciousness uh, or in our economy that I think they deserve. Headed out the door on vacation for a little bit, but I'll be back shortly with new stuff. Until then, please explore previous episodes. If you're new to The Crush, tell all your friends about it. Rate the show on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at CrushPod. Visit www.crushpodcast.com. Hope you're all having a great summer. Enjoy what remains of it before those school bells start to ring anew. Talk to you next time.